Streaming live from Taos, New Mexico. Here is Dr. J. Allen on Safety FM. Broadcasting live from the Safety FM studios in Orlando, Florida. Here is your host, Dr. J. Allen on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Arrow. The next generation error reduction and mitigation system. For more information, go to aerohp.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. How have you been? I know the more and more we get to do this, the more we get to interact with each other. I have received a lot of feedback from our little episode that occurred on Friday. So I do appreciate that. A lot of good feedback. So I'm glad that people are taking a listen to the podcast and to the broadcast and really enjoying what's actually going on. As for me, I am still having the wonderful opportunity to be able to travel around and be able to speak and do the broadcast and do the radio stuff. So hopefully you're able to catch me out on the road if you haven't done so already, or you can actually sign up for something that's coming up here in the very near future. Anyways, I'm not going to waste too much of your time today. I just want to get right into it. Let me tell you what we have going on today. Today, we have an interview with Rosa Carrillo. She is the author of The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership. Rosa is a dedicated champion of promoting safety, well-being, and inclusion in the workplace. She has devoted her career to coaching, teaching, and developing leaders to be people-centered. Her work has helped companies transform their safety performance for the last 25 years in the oil and gas industry, pharmaceuticals, nuclear, mining, manufacturing, and power generation in multiple countries. So we have the opportunity of speaking with Rosa Carrillo today here on Safety FM. You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM. Hi, everybody. Todd Conklin. I know lots of you get your information while you drive down the road or sit on planes or sit in meetings and look interested. And now you should know that three of my books are available for your listening pleasure on Audible. With the help of Jay Allen and Safety FM, we've produced three of the books, Workplace Fatalities, The Five Principles of Human Performance, and my very first book, Simple Revolutionary Acts, and they're available now where you get audiobooks. So I normally start off with the most with the question of how did you get involved with this whole thing with consulting? How did the career path get you to this point? Uh, great question. I my first career. I've had so many careers, but my first career was as a kindergarten kindergarten teacher uh, in East Los Angeles, and I really do feel that having been a kindergarten teacher for three years, that's where I learned my basic skills. Because if you think about it, you know, what do you learn in kindergarten? You learn to get along with others, you learn to share, you learn to follow the rules. Uh, and so I had to learn things the hard way, having being the only adult with 35 children. <laughs> and one thing I learned was that you couldn't force people or make uh, the children do anything that they really didn't want to do. So I had to learn how to uh, connect, uh, how to motivate, and how to keep them interested uh, so that I could run a smooth uh, classroom. 
So I went from that into business, and my first encounter with safety was um, in the awards and recognition field. Uh, I used to help design programs where you, you remember in the 80s, if you didn't have accidents for a number of days, uh, you were eligible for prizes and rewards. Remember that? Oh, I, I, I would love to say that it's only in the 80s, but unfortunately, there's still companies out there today that do the same thing. Really? Well, it's, you know, OSHA is frowning on that more and more. Oh, yes. Back oh, yes. then, it was like the coin of the realm, and I was working with uh, a huge uh, oil and gas company, and they had gotten to the point where they were giving away trucks to employees. Oh, wow. uh, but the way you qualified for it, name would go into a drawing, but you had to have absolutely no re, uh, recordables for a certain amount of time. And I was working with a group of employees, and they were saying, you know, the last time we gave one of those trucks away, the guy had a terrible accident the next day, and he had been like, not following the safety procedures for years. So this is a joke. And I thought to myself, you know what, this, this really is a joke and it's not really helping to improve uh, the safety uh, performance or reduce accidents in the workplace, really. And so I decided to go back to school and I got my master's in organizational effectiveness. So let me, ask a, let me ask a question right there, and I apologize about interrupting yeah, you. So, how do you, so how do you jump from kindergarten to all of a sudden decide safety is the, the realm that I want to get into next? Well, it was really uh, jumping from kindergarten into the business world because I uh, wanted to, my personality is such that I, I don't like to do the same thing every day. And when you're a teacher, you really do have to be very routine oriented because teaching uh, children how to read is a very step-by-step -step and repetitious task, which, uh, you know, is greatly necessary. But I'm, it, being who I am, I had to go out and do into a career where I would have different challenges, meet different people, uh, and work with different groups. And that's what I found in the business world because I went into uh, training uh, and development, and that's where I got introduced to um, the whole uh, safety awards and performance group because I loved putting together those awards programs. So and, and you did or you you, you <laughs> and you did reference that you were doing the whole elementary school thing for about three years in total. So when, once you go into the business world and you start doing the safety aspect, how long were you involved with the awards and recognition programs? About twelve years. Okay, and so are at that. At, mm -hmm, go ahead. I was going to say, but during those twelve years, I had um, it was really a gradual transition into uh, looking at the safety culture of the organization because around that time Chernobyl happened and uh, so everybody was writing about safety culture and I began to look into how could that play effect in our uh, safety programs. So as you looked at this and you started recognizing this could be a factor inside of the safety programs, what did you, what did you determine at the time? And what are we talking about years, roughly what year are we talking about, give or take? about 1987, 86, 87, uh, okay. that, that we started to really look at uh, culture. And of course, what I quickly realized was that I didn't really understand culture. Uh, and therefore, I the, thing, the programs that we put together were just very simplistic in terms of, again, rewards and punishments centered around certain activities. For example, uh, if you report near misses, right, then you're eligible for awards. 
Uh, well, don't you think that we still have an issue with culture nowadays, too? I mean, as we still look at it, I mean, we're now talking still 2019 here. And we I still feel that there's industries and organizations that still have problem with culture. So how do you... So how do you look at this, especially being so involved with it for a little over 40 years and still seeing that some of the some of the problems are still the same that were back then? Exactly. And, and you know, everything uh, goes through cycles, Jay. So culture seemed like the magic pill back then, the magic bullet. Uh, right. ah, because when I went back, I told you I, I got my master's in organizational effectiveness, and we went very uh, deeply into culture. Uh, if you're familiar with Edgar Schein, he was one of my professors. Oh, and nice. I did my thesis on the topic of safety culture, and he told me that there was no such thing as safety culture at that time, <laughs> 1990, 1990 or so, 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, but I was insistent, oh, no, there is a safety culture. <clears throat> built my whole I built the whole business I I was married at the time to Steve Simon who and we started in uh, a group called culture change consultants uh, in safety and of course when Ed heard that he laughed he goes oh my god culture change consultants there's no way to manage culture and there's no way to change it he told me Uh, but I knew better so um, we developed a whole program around how to change your culture using employee involvement. I was really um, excited about it. I was passionate about it because it really centered on employee involvement. A few years later, flashback to uh, fast forward to uh, 2019, uh, I just uh, wrote an article. I wrote a book uh, talking about that safety culture isn't really a viable concept to improve safety performance. So as you look at this, and even going back then, we'll get to the book in a moment for sure. But as you look at this, how were you being so far ahead at the time? And of course, even referencing on the pushback that you're getting from Edgar Chine at the time, how were people looking at you when you were coming in with this whole messaging of culture and then safety culture on top of it? How did... How did people first observe that when you would bring this forward? Well, people responded to it really well. Uh, I think that's why it's so embedded now that if you tried to go in and and get people to stop using the term safety culture, to stop looking at safety issues as a culture problem, you you would just get a blank look now. Uh, Because back then, people knew they had tried, um, they were trying behavior-based observation programs, they were trying, uh, you know, all of these awards and incentives, and it really wasn't helping them. Now, the behavior observation uh, folks, that's an entirely different issue because there were some some successful programs with that, but uh, I became uh, anti-behavior observation because I really didn't believe that people, that the um, rec- the response reward um, level was where human beings best operated. I felt that there was a lot more to people than that um, action, response, feedback, and so on and so forth. The ABCs, remember? Oh, yes. So do you feel that this is some of the actual core factors to to the relationship factor in safety leadership, the book that you wrote? Well, yes, because it led me to well, you know, I have to say that I've been in the field a long time and I 
had uh, some successful experiences working, not because of me, but because I was able to work with leaders who were willing to engage with people and build those relationships with people. But I also had some significant failures that when I look back on them, I still feel um, that, that I should have done a lot better in those situations. And really that's what drove me to write the book uh, because I wanted to share with people uh, the actions and, and behaviors and beliefs of successful leaders in an effort to influence and convince leaders who have yet to reach that point where they really understand that people's feelings, emotions, um, their aspirations are really where their heads are at at work. And if those aren't in a positive space, your safety awareness is level is way down. And that causes a lot of accidents because number one, you're just not as aware of your environment and the hazards around you. But most probably, most significantly, is that you feel it's unsafe to share information about mistakes or concerns or to correct people. Uh, and when that atmosphere doesn't exist, bad things happen. And what do you think about that whole thing where people I know that you referenced this at the very beginning in regards of you know, about your failures, and then now you're going into this whole other thing where common mistake, common issues. Do you think that it's still part of our culture where failures is not something that we want to acknowledge as we have conversations inside of our jobs? Yes, uh, um, of course, because even though we give lip service to learning from our mistakes and failures are opportunities to learn, that's a huge, um, high, it's a high barrier to, to get over because we are more or less genetically designed to look good, right? I want to look good because if I don't look good, you won't accept me. You might uh, re reject me, throw me out of the, your group. You won't trust me. You won't have confidence in me. So I'm not going to share my mistakes. And I'm going to go as far as even saying that people won't even ask questions to things they don't know the answer to. And that's a huge safety hazard. So when you go into an organization and they have all of a sudden contacted you because they want you to consult with them and you start rolling portion of this, of this out and you have this conversation in regards of failures and changing their culture, changing particularly their safety culture, what is normally the pushback that you get? And let's start off with the C level and then we'll work down into the line level. Let's work. Yes. Well, at the senior level, uh, first of all, I don't talk about culture anymore. Okay. And the reason I don't bring up the culture is because whenever we have a really complex, difficult situation dealing with people, it gets put under the safety culture failure banner, and then we don't even know what to do about it. Let's face it. How do you how do you fix a culture? How do you change a culture? Well, uh, leaders have to set the example, um, and they have to get out and they have to support safety. But it doesn't really get at the essence of what it is that successful leaders do in order to get this excellent level of performance, which is to socially interact, build relationships, have conversations on a daily level with their direct report. So when I go in and I work with the senior team, 
I say to them, the first thing uh, I tell them about why relationships are, are so important and why relationships are really what drive your organization because they're all into compliance and getting more um, technology in there. They're into rules, they're into disciplinary processes. And I say, okay, hold on. Let me tell you why that stuff doesn't work. It's because people don't operate that way. People work, operate at an emotional level. They need to feel they belong. They need to feel trusted. They need to feel valued. And so that is your very first step that you have to begin with. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to have in-depth conversations with each of your direct reports. You're going to find out where they are, what they're doing, what they're proud of, what they need help with, and you're going to make them feel safe to tell you what's going well and what's not going well. So that means maybe the beginning conversation every single day to begin to break down those barriers that have built up over the years. And that's how I start. And the very senior person at, at, in, in that uh, facility begins with his or her direct reports and then holding their, their direct reports accountable for having these conversations with their direct reports. Uh, and by the time you get down like to the supervisory level, you hear things like, wow, nobody has ever cared about us. They care about employees. Everything is about employees. And they care about themselves at the senior level. They get these bonuses. They get these promotions. But nobody has ever cared about us and what we think and what we're going through. And you begin to see a breakthrough in the performance. So let me ask you, do you get a lot of pushback on that at the very beginning? And I only ask from the standpoint of some of these larger organizations that you might have direct reports, but you might have a couple hundred where it might not be the same aspect of that you'll be able to do this on a daily basis. So do you get pushback from organizations of that, that kind of size? Or normally, what do you get about when it comes to pushback? Well, when you're working at the most senior level, of course, you don't have, you're not dealing with 100 people. You're dealing mm -hmm. with, you know, 8 to but 12, 13. Right. And that's certainly achievable at that level. I, but when uh, you when you roll down and you said that you yeah, then you go go, down, going into yeah, the super when you said when you said the supervisors next right. that's the that's how the the question came about right okay yes you're right because uh, I just uh, interviewed a, a supervisor with a hundred direct reports yes mm -hmm. uh, and I, I was interviewing him because in at his um, facility which was by the way had a terrible terrible safety record and everybody pointed me to, to this one supervisor because his team had the highest performance not only in safety but in productivity and quality he, he had basically the highest performance team and when i asked him <clears throat> what he felt uh, was the cause of the team's success he said having these conversations and being out in the field now, obviously, with 100 direct reports, he's not going to talk to everybody every single day, but he makes himself available so that people can approach him and they, when they have an issue, but they wouldn't approach him if he hadn't had at least one or two in-depth conversations with them to establish that relationship. Uh, so I always say it's really simple to have a high-performing team. But it isn't easy because you have to, first of all, overcome perhaps you're not the type to be comfortable out there talking to people, right? Uh, or you may have past history where you don't, you're so 
frustrated and angry, you don't want to do it. But the truth is that if you start doing it and you start letting people uh, say their piece and tell you what's really going on, that is going to become the ground floor for your system. So when you, you kind of covered some things there when you were also talking about caring, about people saying, feeling that they were actually caring. I had a conversation not too long ago with a gentleman by the name of Scott E. Geller, and he was talking about actively caring for people. Now, he, as you probably are aware and familiar with him, he is very strong in the behavior-based safety side of the world. And they are really driving this whole thing about actively caring for people, letting them know how you care for them. And he he's going about it, doing some things differently. He's he's written a couple of books. He also has this bracelet program where these bracelets have a number sequence on them. And he goes out and he hands out these bracelets where people can hand out these bracelets and they track where the bracelet came from to show that they're actively caring for people. Do you feel to some extent that this is where you can show how you're caring for, for someone? even though that it is coming from the behavior-based side of the house? Um, well, let me, uh, yes, you're right. Geller is, you know, he's been very active in the behavior observation movement and, and he has made some shifts because originally behaviorism began on the premise that you can only evaluate people by, uh, by their behavior. You can't see their emotions can't see their attitude so you can't and you don't know what they're thinking so you really just observe their behavior and then you say okay you're you've, you've done something unsafely you know this number of times or you've done it safely this number of times and that's how we're going to evaluate the state of the art uh, unfortunately uh, first of all that isn't for me that is not a true statement because of course cognitive psychology came along and it talked about how people operate off their mental models and then later on relationship psychology came along and neurology has shown that people make decisions based on emotions uh they show that when people feel ostracized or excluded their brain lights up as if they were being physically attacked so what's going on internally in us as people um is what drives our behavior and you you're not always going to be able to tell by observing my behavior what's going on i i could just be silent standing there silent and you could take that as agreement when that's the last thing in my mind so that's what uh, to me what was wrong with what went wrong with the behavior observation programs the other thing is that um there wasn't a realization or recognition that asking a, an individual to go up to a peer or possibly a boss and tell them that they're doing something wrong, no matter how gently you say it, is one of the most frightening things in the world to do. Were you aware of that, Jay? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100% because I believe that it's, it becomes very interesting on how that ends up working because you have to look at it from a couple different standpoints. So let's go into the first aspect of if you're actually sharing information with a coworker before we get into the boss scenario. The coworker automatically knows that if you give them a bad grade, they in return more than likely are going to do the same thing. And then if you start looking at from the whole mental model of when you're having the conversation with the person who is a leader or a person who is your direct boss, it has to become very interesting because then you have to start thinking about that and going, okay, when my review season comes about, are they going to remember this conversation on when I reported to them a failure that I saw them do? 
it becomes a very interesting thing on how that is going to end up working. And then the amount of fear of if you're able to have that opportunity to be that honest and what their reaction is going to be at the time. Well, you've got it. You've got it. You've got it in a nutshell. <laughs> and yet we spent how many millions of dollars on these behavioral observation programs when later people admitted that they had just filled out the form and hadn't gone out and looked at anyone at all. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. And the funny part is that I interview quite a few people in regards to behavior-based safety and people that are involved with human and organizational performance. And it's interesting because there are some people in behavior-based safety that believe that HOP only came about because of behavior-based safety and that really the foundations of HOP or human and organizational performance actually comes from the behavior-based safety side of the house. And I think that it's interesting that that's the mental model of some and everybody's entitled to have their own opinion. I've done so much research in regards to trying to really understand of and where everything came from. But I just find it interesting that they that the people that are behavior based safety believe that this is where a lot of this information came from. And I think that there's a lot that you can learn from that's out there, but you always have to have a foundation to build from. I will tell you that I would have not made it to this part of my career if I had not heard of behavior-based safety, I think that that kind of started off where I started looking into the trajectory of safety and, re and where I'm at today. But without that, I don't think I'd be where I'm at. And nothing against the t when I first started with behavior-based safety, but right now I am so involved with human and organizational performance that I just see that it's the correct version. I just find it is very interesting that people say that this is the new view of safety or the new aspect of safety but it's been around for, for everything that I can find anywhere between 27 to about 30 years in total when I started seeing the stuff from the INPO, the stuff that came from INPO and the stuff that came from the Department of Energy on when they started using this right around the same time when Three Mile Island occurred. That's right. So, isn't Todd Conklin comes from the nuclear industry? Yes, Todd Conklin comes from the nuclear industry. I was able to to do some interviewing with some of the people that actually were there for the original foundations piece and really trying to understand on how this whole thing was developed. So as I look at it and I hear, you know, the different conversations and you being involved with this for such a long period of time, when did the shift occur to you where you were thinking, and I'm talking like what year when you said, okay, maybe behavior is not the way to go. And then you started going down this whole path with looking at culture and then looking at you in an organizational performance? Because it sounds like it's very safety differently related on what you're looking at. So was it exactly in in the early 90s when this did occur? Well, first of all, I have an interesting uh, background because my um, ex-husband studied under Maslow and had a degree from Harvard in cognitive psychology. So I was never a behaviorist, never. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and I remember, I mean, I remember that uh, they would ask uh, the two of them, Geller and, and Steve Simon, they would they would invite them to do debates and such on the topic uh, because behaviorism was just so limiting. I mean, when you read the first sentence that, you know, we, we, we do not value emotions, right there you're taking away the foundation of humanity as far as the humanists are, are concerned. So from the very beginning, and it was very difficult to uh, argue against the behaviorist view because it was very predominant in the 80s. But when culture came into view, uh, it began to open up a whole nother level of, uh, to examine why people behaved the way that they did. And 
you recall when Ed Schein wrote his groundbreaking book on leadership and culture, he talked about how we operate off of these beliefs and assumptions that are automatic. So when we make a decision, we're not even rethinking why are we making this decision. We just know what we believe to be right, what we believe to be wrong, what you know, what's worked in the past and what's going to work in the future, and we just take action. And that's really where I began to say, you know, two and two came together for me. Uh, I thought, wow, this whole business uh, of operating off of your beliefs and assumptions, how can I go out into the workplace and talk to employees about this? Because we had been looking at norms, and you're familiar with the term norms, which meant that basically when you're part of a group of peers, uh, you act according to the way that they expect you to act, because if you don't act that way, you are not going to be part of the team, you're not going to be part of the group. And going back to um, that you, in order to survive, that you psychologically to survive, you have to be part of that group. So the last thing you're going to do is do something that's going to get you thrown out of the group. So I had this idea that going out and working with the employees and having them bring up the, bring up what are the norms, what are the expectations, what do you think the beliefs are that are operating in your safety program uh, right now? What do you think is driving your safety program? And uh, one of the, some of the things that came up had to do with the expectations of management and their supervisor. You know, hey, when the supervisor says safety first, but expects us to, um, you know, finish that job on time, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to finish the job on time. So it was a great uh, shift in the conversation, uh, which uh, took us away from the, the behavior-based safety aspects and took us to uh, an arena where we were asking employees to participate in the development of their own culture, their own set of beliefs. What, what do you think is really going to keep you alive? And uh, I, you know, that took me to my next level, which I explore in my book, you know, going beyond culture. So if people are interested in picking up the book, The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership, where could they actually acquire the book? Well, the most uh, popular place is Amazon.com. But really, I, I've seen it listed on, in all the, uh, with all the book dealers on the Internet. So. And, it, and is it available in digital format and such as Kindle and so on? Yes, it is available in digital format, but not yet audio. Um, you have to sell a certain number of copies to make it into the audio realm. Okay. And then just one more curiosity question, if you actually mm -hmm. don't mind me asking, what actually level of their journey does the audience member need to be part of to be able to, to you know, to really get into the book? So if they're going to purchase the book, where do they need to be in the journey? Is this anywhere from starter, from beginner to intermediate, or is this advanced, or how do you how do you look at it? Well, I have um, you know several professors are going to be ordering it for their courses for students because I think the earlier we begin to introduce this notion of the importance of relationships in organizational performance, the better off we are um, because the longer. Uh, you're already working in the organization, the more, uh, shall we say, normalized it is to start looking at other factors such as, you know, let's get in the right uh, disciplinary systems, let's get in the right procedures, uh, um, and neglecting the fact that people 
really don't follow procedures. They follow expectations. Rosa, so if people want to get more information about you and the work that you're doing, where could they, where could they find you? Well, I do have a website, www.careoconsultants.com. And uh, they can, my phone number and email are on that. I'm also very active on LinkedIn, which I love. I have a, we have a tremendous, I have a tremendous following on LinkedIn. So I love to, uh, I'm posting all the time and I love it when people post challenging questions and their own experience. Um, It's a great place for a conversation. Rosa, I really do appreciate you coming on to Safety FM. Well, thank you. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about how relationships really drive behavior in organizations. Enjoy the best safety shows on the planet on safetyfm.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. SafetyFM.com. Wow, how things can change from one week to the next. Hey, hope everybody out there is staying healthy. I know everything is super crazy. We feel disoriented by the COVID-19 virus. It's more important than ever to stay connected and check in with your loved ones. That's why I'm so happy I've got T-Mobile. Listen, T-Mobile isn't just talking the talk. They're taking measures right now to make life easier for everyone by doing the right thing for their customers during this really critical time. For example, T-Mobile has ensured all current customers with data plans have access to unlimited smartphone data on their network for two months. We're all in this together. T-Mobile truly believes that. And while many T-Mobile stores are temporarily closed to help keep customers and employees healthy, they've still got you covered with any help you need. Just check out T-Mobile.com. You can see what stores are still open and how you can manage your account online. Stay safe out there. During congestion, customers using more than 50 gigs a month may notice reduced speeds prioritization. Video typically at 480p, capable device required.